Every journalist wants to get the next big scoop, the story that's going to reverberate around the world and put them on the map. And for some, that desire is so strong, they'll do anything to make it happen. But when a journalist's code of ethics falls by the wayside, people can get hurt, even royalty. Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're investigating the truth behind the most controversial interview of Princess Diana's life, an interview which her family believes was the first step on a slippery slope that led to her divorce and alienation from the royal court. This is the story of how one unlikely whistleblower attempted to expose the truth and forfeited his career in the process. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. The story you're about to hear is one that for years was composed almost entirely of rumors and speculation. The full truth only emerged in 2020 when new information came to light. 25 years after Princess Diana's fateful interview and 40 years after she first won the hearts of a nation. In 1981, Lady Diana Spencer married Prince Charles, the heir to the British throne, in a fairy tale wedding that was broadcast to the world. Diana soon gave birth to Prince William and then Prince Harry. And for a while, her marriage looked picture perfect. But behind closed doors, it was turning sour. And by 1992, she and Charles were separated, although Diana was still living on royal property in a private wing at Kensington Palace. As the truth leaked out, the media picked over the details of the couple's failing marriage like vultures. Every week there was a new story. Journalists dished the dirt on Charles's affair with his married ex-girlfriend, Camilla Parker Bowles, speculated on the well-being of the young princes, and reported that Diana was becoming paranoid and untrusting of those around her. While the papers dutifully published every new allegation, no journalist had managed to get their hands on the Holy Grail, a candid one-on-one -on -one interview with Diana herself. 
Not until 1995, that is, when a young journalist called Martin Bashir came up with a plan. Martin Bashir was a reporter for the BBC's flagship current affairs series, Panorama, at the time, and was desperate to have Diana on the show. To get access to her, you had to play the long game, build relationships with the people closest to her first, and work your way in. And one surefire way to earn her trust was to win that of her beloved brother and gatekeeper, Earl Spencer. But Earl Spencer wouldn't speak to just anyone even if they had the power of the BBC behind them. Bashir needed to pique the Earl's interest first. Fortunately, he had just the right information in his possession. In August 1995, 32-year-old Bashir reached out to Spencer and told him he'd dug up some concerning documents he thought he should see. Documents relating to his sister, Bashir insisted that he wasn't asking for an interview or any information. He just wanted to talk to him. To his surprise, he got a reply right away. And on August 31st, 1995, he was invited to Althorpe House, Earl Spencer's grand country home in the leafy English countryside. Spencer greeted Bashir in his elegant living room and called for tea to be brought in. He was 31 years old and blonde like his sister, with a similarly rosy complexion. While the tea was poured, Bashir pulled out two bank statements from his briefcase and handed them to Spencer, who studied them for a while. He saw immediately how significant these documents could be. The statements belonged to a Mr. Alan Waller, the former head of Earl Spencer's security team. They showed that Alan had received two suspicious payments from companies he should have had nothing to do with. Bashir pointed out that the first was from a tabloid newspaper, no doubt in return for giving them confidential information about Earl Spencer and his sister. And the second was from a company called Penfold's Consultants. Bashir explained that this was a surveillance company that was being paid to feed information back to the royal family. While Spencer was upset to see that Waller had been paid by the tabloids, the pair hadn't parted on the best terms, so it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility. But he was surprised by the Penfold surveillance payment. Had the royals really paid his former head of security to spy on his family like this? Spencer had of course known that his sister's relationship with the royals had been strained since the separation. But here, in front of him, seemed to be proof that the situation was worse than he'd realized. As Bashir put the documents back into his briefcase, Spencer was lost in thought. Bashir told him he'd visit again soon with more evidence, and Spencer thanked him. The reporter had been very convincing in person, and the bank statements had looked genuine. But when he'd left, Spencer started to question things a little. How on earth had this young journalist managed to get his hands on such explosive information? In search of reassurance, Spencer made a call to the BBC and asked to speak to the person in charge of Panorama, the show Bashir worked for. When he was put through to editor Steve Hewlett, he asked him about Martin Bashir. Every journalist in Britain was trying to get close to Diana. 
if Bashir had tweaked, manipulated, or even fabricated this information to get into their inner circle, it would be entirely against the journalistic codes of ethics. Could he really trust this young man? Hewlett told him that Bashir was one of his best and confirmed that the claims he'd made were true. His mind set at rest, Spencer agreed to see Bashir again. The next time they met, Bashir brought along even more insider information. Spencer wrote it all down in a notebook as the reporter spoke. Bashir explained that it wasn't just Spencer's former head of security who was spying on his family. The conspiracy against Diana and the Spencers was extensive. Even Diana's own trusted private secretary was implicated. In fact, both he and Prince Charles's private secretary were being paid large amounts of money by the intelligence services to monitor Diana's movements. The princess's personal correspondence and phone line had been tapped too. MI6 were watching her. A tracking device had been fitted to her car. Her bodyguard was plotting against her, and her closest female friends were leaking stories about her to the press. Bashir also shared some very personal information about the royals themselves. He said Camilla Parker Bowles was depressed because Charles was in love with his son's nanny. Charles's father, the Duke of Edinburgh, hated Diana, and Prince Charles had allegedly given his son William a watch that was also a listening device, presumably so he could spy on Diana. Bashir's list went on and on, each revelation drawing on the very concerns that were plaguing Diana. Press intrusion was at an all-time high, and rumors about her deteriorating relationship with the royal family were rife. She felt increasingly vulnerable, and she already feared a conspiracy against her. Soon after this second meeting with Earl Spencer, Bashir was invited to meet the princess herself. Spencer had told his sister about Bashir's claims, and the information had confirmed many of her suspicions. She was keen to know more. And so, on September 19th, 1995, Bashir met Diana for the first time, sat opposite her in the spacious living room of a friend's Knightsbridge apartment. Bashir went into detail about the conspiracy he had discovered. As the reporter spoke, Diana listened intently but her brother began to feel uneasy. The reporter seemed less confident this time. There was something shifty about him. His claims seemed even more bizarre than before, and there were some inaccuracies in his story. Eventually, Spencer told Bashir that they'd heard enough and politely showed him out. He apologized to Diana and suggested that the reporter might not have it right after all. Diana told him not to worry. It was always nice to see her favorite brother anyway. Earl Spencer had thought that the saga ended there. He assumed that Diana, like him, had dismissed Bashir. But in fact, Diana had been persuaded. For her, it was a relief to hear that her paranoia wasn't unfounded. A few days later, just three weeks after Bashir's first meeting with her brother, Diana saw Bashir again this time without Spencer present. Together, they decided that the best course of action would be for Diana to go public with everything she'd been through at the hands of the royals. It was her turn to set the record straight, and Bashir would be with her every step of the way. 
In the months leading up to the interview, Diana told very few people about her plan. She no longer trusted her private secretary. Not now she believed he was being paid to spy on her. And she kept it a secret from her closest girlfriends, too. She didn't even tell her brother. Before long, Diana's circle of trusted friends had shrunk significantly, leaving more than enough room for Martin Bashir, who, on the 5th of November, 1995, met the princess at her home in Kensington Palace to record her interview. Bashir was accompanied by a small TV crew who arrived in a van disguised as a workman's to avoid suspicion. Diana greeted them around the back of the palace and they set up their cameras in her sitting room. Two weeks later, on the 20th of November, one of the most famous interviews of all time was broadcast to 23 million people in the UK alone, around 40% of the population. It was unlike any royal interview anyone had ever seen. Diana's openness about the breakdown of her marriage was shocking and painful to watch. In the interview, Diana told Bashir that she didn't want her marriage to Charles to end and had desperately tried to make the relationship work. She said she had fought for it and cited Charles's affair with his married ex-girlfriend, Camilla Parker Bowles, as a factor in the split. She famously claimed that there had been three people in her marriage, which made it a bit crowded. She went on to speak about her battle with postnatal depression and bulimia, subjects which were taboo at the time, and revealed that at her lowest points, she had started self-harming. She said that this had made her an embarrassment to Charles and that the rest of the royal family did little to help her. In fact, she claimed they were waging a campaign against her and wanted her out of the family. She also talked about the constant pressure of the press, who she said harassed her to the point of abuse. As these revelations spread across the world, Martin Bashir was lauded as one of the finest journalists of his time. He had landed the scoop of a generation and was destined for great things. But some people in the media were beginning to wonder, how had this young, relatively unknown reporter convinced Diana to share more in one night than the royals had in a decade? Had his tactics all been entirely above board? This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Three months before the Diana interview had aired, towards the end of August 1995, 
BBC reporter Martin Bashir had made a phone call to an old colleague and asked for a favor. Matt Wiesler was an award-winning graphic designer who created motion graphics for TV and specialized in current affairs shows. He'd often worked on the Panorama series. It was late at night when his phone rang, but he was happy to help his colleague out especially because he'd just gone freelance after several successful years of employment at the BBC. It was important to keep his old colleagues sweet, so they'd keep bringing work to him. Bashir told Wiesler that he needed him to make up some prop documents for an upcoming show. This wasn't an unusual request for Wiesler. He'd often designed documents for this purpose, but what was unusual was how urgently Bashir needed them. They had to be ready first thing the next morning. Wiesler would have to work through the night. Bashir wouldn't tell him too much more about the job over the phone, though. He said he was on his way over to Wiesler's apartment in southwest London. When Bashir arrived, wearing his trademark rounded glasses and leather jacket, Wiesler led him into his home office. Bashir explained that the documents in question were bank statements, He didn't actually have the real statements with him, but he'd seen them and had written down the details in his notebook. This wasn't ideal, but they'd have to muddle through. Wiesler sat down at his computer and began typing as Bashir read out a list of company names, invoice figures, and bank codes. When Wiesler asked Bashir what show the bank statements were for, Bashir told him that was confidential. Wiesler couldn't glean much information from the statement itself. The name of the bank account holder, Alan Waller, meant nothing to him. And the fact that this person was being paid by a tabloid outlet was unremarkable in his industry, too. But there was one thing that stood out. There was an unexpected company name on the statement, Penfold's Consultants. Wiesler remembered it had come up in two previous panorama shows about the business dealings of the England soccer manager, Terry Venables. It seemed odd to him that this company was involved in yet another episode, so he'd checked with Bashir that the name was right. Perhaps he'd mixed up his notes. But Bashir told him not to worry. The name was fine. Once Bashir had finished reading out the names and figures from his notebook, he'd left Wiesler to it. It wasn't easy to make a genuine-looking statement on a home computer back in the 90s, and it took him several hours to get it right. In the early hours of the morning, he checked through the statement one last time and realized that the balance at the bottom of the document wasn't right. The figures didn't add up. But when he called Bashir at his home to ask what he should do, he'd said it wasn't a big deal. Wiesler should just add up the figures and balance the total himself. A little while later, a courier had arrived to pick up the statements and deliver them to Bashir. Wiesler had collapsed into bed and barely given the job another thought. Until three months later. On the 20th of November, 1995, Wiesler turned on the TV and saw Bashir's Diana interview. He realized that this was the show Bashir had been working on that night. Like everyone else, Wiesler had been shocked at how candid Diana had been. Before her interview, the royal family had always tried to keep private matters private. 
And while the tenacious British press had uncovered a few scandals over the years, it was unheard of for a royal to invite a journalist into their home and reveal personal information that made the rest of the family look bad. Diana had taken a huge risk in criticizing the royals. She was dealing with one of the most powerful families in the world, and they were the people who paid for her expensive, high-level security, the bodyguards that protected her from the clamoring public and press, and even the palace Diana lived in. If they cut ties with her off the back of this interview, she could be left exposed and vulnerable. Bashir must have pulled out all the stops to secure that interview. As he watched, Wiesler started to feel uneasy. He thought back to the bank statements, the unbalanced total, the dog-eared notebook, the urgency with which Bashir had called, and the questions he'd had about Penfolds. Now that Wiesler knew that the story had been about Diana, he was even less convinced that the real Penfolds and the England soccer manager could have been involved. Was it possible that Bashir had fabricated the statements, or elements of them at least, and somehow used them to convince Diana to agree to the interview? If this were true, it went entirely against journalistic ethics, which requires stories to be compiled by honest means, especially when the subjects were so important and the stakes so high. Wiesler realized with a jolt that if Bashir had acted unethically, as his gut was telling him, he might be seen as his accomplice. Wiesler knew he didn't have any real proof Bashir had done anything wrong, and he didn't want the BBC to see him as a troublemaker, especially as he was relying on them for future work. But he did want to get a second opinion on the matter. Perhaps a colleague could set his mind at ease. And so, on November 27, 1995, a week after the show aired, Wiesler reached out to Mark Killick, a senior producer on Panorama he'd worked with for years. Killick listened carefully to Wiesler's concerns. He knew that if these suspicions were proved right, the fallout could be terrible for Panorama and the BBC. He asked Wiesler to fax him copies of the statements, he hadn't worked on the episode directly, but as a senior producer, he'd been closer to the story than the graphic designer. So if there was anything questionable, he might be able to recognize it. When they arrived, he saw that the statements belonged to Alan Waller, a man he knew was Spencer's former head of security. And just as Wiesler had been, Killick was surprised to see that one of his payments had come from Penfold's consultants. Killick had actually been the producer of the Panorama episode about the soccer manager, in which the company had originally featured. He, too, doubted it had anything to do with the Royals, especially because he knew that Terry Venables was currently suing the BBC for their previous program. It would be risky to mention a company connected to him again. Killick decided to do some digging. And when he reported back to Wiesler a few days later, he had a lot to share. He told Wiesler that the day after their call, he'd gone to Martin Bashir himself and had shown him the copies of the statements. He said that when the reporter had seen them and heard Matt Wiesler's name, he'd become defensive, angry even, and had shut down the conversation. Suspicious, Killick had gone up the ladder to Panorama's editor, Steve Hewlett. 
but he'd been defensive too. Killick claimed that Hewlett had told him that it was none of his business. The information in the statements was true, and Diana hadn't seen them anyway, so it wasn't possible that they'd been used to persuade her into the interview. Killick's concerns were baseless. When asked about the Penfolds issue, Hewlett told them it was merely a coincidence that the shows featured the same company. He suggested that Killick was just jealous of Bashir's success and was trying to undermine his sterling work on the program. As he left Hewlett's office, Killick had urged him to contact Earl Spencer, Alan Waller's former boss, and ask him if he'd seen these statements. He had a theory that Bashir might have used them to get close to the Earl before Diana. But Hewlett waved away this suggestion too. Finally, Killick told Wiesler that the day after his meeting with Hewlett, he'd been taken aside by a BBC executive and told he was being disloyal. He would be leaving Panorama immediately and move to a different show. As Killick finished his story, both he and Wiesler agreed that it seemed like the team might be trying to hide something. And they would be even more sure of that when, a couple of weeks later, Matt Wiesler's home was broken into. It was December 15, 1995, and Wiesler was at the Panorama Christmas party at a pub in central London. But the atmosphere there was tense. People knew he'd cast aspersions on Martin Bashir, and he didn't stay long. As Wiesler walked up the stairs to his apartment afterwards, he noticed that the front door was slightly ajar. He pushed it open and tentatively stepped inside. Whoever had broken in had already left. The expensive TV, record player, and computer were still there, but it looked like someone had rifled through every drawer and cupboard, searching for something. He quickly went to the box where he kept his work files and searched for the two discs he'd saved the Bashir statements onto. They'd been labeled and would have been easy for an intruder to identify if they knew what they were after. The discs were gone. And the culprit had left no identifying evidence behind. In fact, Wiesler never did find out who took them. That night, Wiesler barely slept. He worried that if the press had got hold of the statements, they would find that they were fake, as he suspected, and pin the blame on him as the forger. It has never been made clear whether Wiesler reported this break-in to the police. It's possible he worried that he'd implicate himself in the wrongdoing he suspected of Bashir. Indeed, having discovered the incriminating discs were the only items taken, discretion may have been the safest course of action. We do know that he did reach out to someone, though. The day after the burglary, he called Tim Gardham, who was one of the BBC Current Affairs bosses, and a step above Steve Hewlett. As head of weekly programming at BBC News, Gardam was a big fish at the BBC, and Wiesler was surprised to learn he hadn't been told about his suspicions before now. Nevertheless, Gardam took Wiesler seriously and understood that the BBC's reputation could be under threat. Just as Killick had done, Gardam sought out Martin Bashir to hear his version of events. Sat in Gardam's office, Bashir assured him that the information in the statements was genuine, with one small caveat. 
he admitted that the real Penfold's consultants hadn't been involved in the story. He claimed that he'd known a surveillance company had been paying Alan Waller, but he didn't know the name of the company, so he'd asked Matt Wiesler to use Penfold's as a place filler. It had been an odd choice, but he just hadn't been thinking properly. It was then that he told Gardam something that seemed to make Wiesler's claims irrelevant. He said that all of the information in the bank statements had, in fact, come from Princess Diana herself. They'd first spoken on September 19, 1995, and she had told them that Alan Waller was receiving money from News International and a security surveillance company on the royal payroll. If what Bashir was saying was true, this meant that he couldn't have used the bank statements to convince Diana or her brother to do the interview, as it was information they already knew, assuming that Diana had told her brother about his security guard's nefarious dealings. Tim Gardam had no reason to question Bashir's story at this point. It all seemed pretty much above board. But he had missed a key piece of intel that proved Diana couldn't have been the source of the information. As Bashir had said, he had first spoken to Diana on September 19th, but the statements had already been made by then, nearly a month earlier, in fact, by Matt Wiesler. Unfortunately for Wiesler and the BBC, this chronological disparity wouldn't be discovered until much, much later. Having missed this clue, Tim Gardam had moved on to his next question. If Bashir hadn't been planning to show the statements to Diana, why had he bothered to get the statements made up? Once again, Bashir dismissed Gardam's concerns. He told him he'd simply had the statements made up for his records. While Gardam thought this had been wasteful and unnecessary, he didn't feel it constituted any real wrongdoing on Bashir's part. Gardam decided that to put the whole issue to bed, all he needed Bashir to provide was proof that Diana hadn't been swayed by any documents he had shown to her. Then he could draw a line under the whole affair. And the very next day, just three days before Christmas, a handwritten note arrived from the princess herself. She stated that she was entirely happy with the way the interview had been conducted and claimed that no documents had been shown to her. She said that she had no regrets in taking part. Matt Wiesler was told that there was no basis to his suspicions after all, and Tim Garden and Steve Hewlett were relieved that the matter was all wrapped up just in time for Christmas. It looked like Bashir was in the clear, for now at least. In January 1996, as a new year dawned in London, Wiesler was starting to accept that the whole affair was over. While he was still suspicious of Bashir and couldn't shake the feeling that he may have played a part in manipulating Diana, he had pushed things as far as he could. He was now just trying to get on with his life. Although he noticed that the phone wasn't exactly ringing off the hook with work offers. The truth was, Many of his concerns about Bashir were just hunches, and it was hard to argue with a letter from Diana herself. But then, in March 1996, Wiesler was approached by a journalist called Nick Fielding, who worked for the tabloid newspaper The Mail on Sunday. 
Fielding had been alerted to the possibility of foul play around the Diana interview when he had received a message earlier that year from an anonymous source. The source, whose identity is still unknown today, told Fielding about the allegations that Bashir had falsified documents to get close to the Spencers. Fielding had done some digging and had come across Matt Wiesler's name. Would he consider giving a statement? Wiesler wasn't sure at first, but after giving it some thought, he decided that now his BBC work was all but dried up, he had nothing to lose. And so he agreed to tell Nick Fielding his side of the story. At least if they did find that Bashir had falsified the documents, he'd done his best to clear his own name. At BBC headquarters, the Panorama team had thought the story was behind them too, until the Mail on Sunday got in touch. The tabloid asked them about Bashir's methods. They had reason to believe he had faked documents. Was that true? The BBC was thrown into a panic and wasn't ready to comment. But the pressure only increased when, on the 21st of March, Panorama editor Steve Hewlett received a phone call from Diana's brother, Earl Spencer. Spencer told him that he too had been contacted by a journalist at the Mail on Sunday, who'd made some worrying suggestions. He wanted to know exactly what was going on. Steve Hewlett and Tim Gardham brought Bashir back in to discuss the allegations. The Mail was threatening to publish a story about the so-called scandal any day now, and they were pressuring the BBC to make a statement. It was time for Bashir to talk. Gardham asked Bashir again and again whether he had shown bogus documents to Earl Spencer, and three times Bashir denied it. But finally, on the fourth time of asking, Bashir caved and admitted he had shown the documents to Spencer after all. In a written statement, he confirmed that he had done so in order to foster a good relationship with him. Tim Gardham was furious. Bashir had lied to him repeatedly about this, so what else had he lied about? He and Hewlett had no choice but to take the information to the head of news and current affairs, Tony Hall, right away. Gardham, who was due to leave the BBC in a matter of days, wrote up all the information he had on the issue and claims he sent it to Tony Hall, with the expectation that it would be dealt with. And when Hall heard the claims, he agreed that Bashir had misled his BBC colleagues and it appeared to have acted unethically and in breach of journalistic guidelines. One might assume that at this point, Bashir and his BBC colleagues had no choice but to come clean publicly. They had Bashir's confession. The mail seemed to be days away from publishing a story that would trounce their reputation. And Earl Spencer smelled a rat too. But in fact, the BBC managed to pull off an astounding feat of damage limitation. In part because key issues had not been thoroughly investigated, whether deliberately or through simple human error. And so, while the Mail on Sunday did publish an article about the affair on the 7th of April, 1996, it failed to have the impact the tabloid had hoped for. The story ran with the big, bold headline, Diana's BBC Man and Fake Documents. In the article, journalist Nick Fielding and his colleague Jason Lewis asked all the right questions, but they were missing some crucial pieces of information. 
While Bashir had admitted to his bosses that he had shown the statements to Earl Spencer, they had not shared this information with the Mail on Sunday. In fact, their statement to the tabloid claimed that the documents were never connected in any way to the Panorama interview with Princess Diana. Worse still, the Mail was unable to get Earl Spencer's side of the story because he had refused to speak to the paper about the investigation. He was suspicious of the tabloid press, and he also didn't want to undermine his sister's decision to give the interview. That meant that the Mail could not confirm whether or not the Earl had been shown the documents, a critical element of the deceit. With so little evidence to go on, the Mail on Sunday couldn't do much more than ask questions and sow the seeds of doubt. Despite this, the bosses at BBC HQ knew that they had to be seen to take action of some kind. And so on the 17th of April, 1996, Tony Hall, the head of current affairs at the BBC, launched an inquiry into the issue. But it was hardly extensive. Unbelievably, graphic designer Matt Wiesler wasn't asked to give his testimony, nor was Earl Spencer. And frustratingly, records suggest that the investigation didn't dig into the real question of whether the facts in the bank statements were fabricated or not. When Bashir was questioned, he continued to maintain that Diana had been the source of the information. Still, no one had noticed that this wasn't possible because the statements had been created a month before he had first met with Diana. When the BBC brought the inquiry to a close, branding it successful, Tony Hall described Bashir as an honest and honorable man. They were taking him at his word and giving him the benefit of the doubt. Soon after, Tony Hall's deputy wrote in a private note to colleagues that the Diana story was probably now dead, unless Spencer talked to the press, and there was no indication that he would. When Matt Wiesler heard about the inquiry's findings, he was devastated. He was more sure than ever that Bashir had acted unethically, and felt that the furtive way the BBC were dealing with the issue made it all the more obvious. By this point, Wiesler's main source of income had disappeared as the BBC had cut him off, and his business was struggling. He'd lost friends, his reputation as a brilliant graphic designer was in tatters, and to add insult to injury, just a few days after the BBC concluded its inquiry, on April 21st, 1996, Martin Bashir and the Panorama team won a BAFTA award for their Princess Diana interview. The controversy had disappeared, and once again, Bashir had gotten away with deceiving the world about how he had illicitly won the trust of the people's princess. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. 
Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. In August 1996, a few months after the inquiry was closed, Charles and Diana's divorce was finalized. Diana was stripped of the title Her Royal Highness, and the love story of the century finally came to an end. And then, one year later, something happened that shocked the world. On August 31st, 1997, Exactly two years to the day since Earl Spencer had first met Bashir, the People's Princess died in a horrific car crash. She had been in Paris at the time with her new lover, film producer Dodie Fayed, who also died in the crash. Their driver was later found to be over the alcohol limit. Diana was just 36 years old. Millions of people were thrown into mourning. And when Matt Wiesler heard of Diana's death, he felt enormous guilt. He was sick to his stomach that Diana would never know the full story. Over the next few years, Wiesler watched as Martin Bashir's career went from strength to strength. He moved to the U.S. and became well-known for landing some of the world's most important interviews. He took jobs on ABC's Nightline, and then Dateline, NBC. And Wiesler was disgusted when, in 2016, Bashir was rehired by the BBC as their religious affairs correspondent. Over time, the rest of the world seemed to forget all about the Mail on Sunday article and the allegations against Bashir. And it might have stayed that way if it wasn't for a journalist called Andy Webb. In early 2020, Andy Webb was researching a documentary for UK TV network Channel 4 to mark the interview's 25th anniversary. Webb had put in a Freedom of Information request to the BBC to ask for any documentation they had on the interview. He'd waited and waited and didn't hold out much hope that they'd send him anything. But then, in summer 2020, he was sent 67 documents relating to the 1996 internal BBC inquiry into Bashir, who was now aged 57. It was a dossier of astounding detail that had never before left the BBC. It was too late for him to add any of the information to the documentary he'd been making, which was due to broadcast in two days, but he felt Diana's brother, Earl Spencer, should see the documents. When Spencer opened the dossier, he was shocked and hurt. It didn't tell him the whole story, but it appeared that the BBC had, at best, failed to properly investigate Martin Bashir's actions and, at worst, covered them up. It was then that Spencer agreed to a long-standing request from Richard Kay, a Daily Mail journalist, to do an interview. 
Published on the 7th of November, 2020, the article outlined the Earl's 1995 meetings with Bashir and the things the journalist had told him, comparing Bashir's tactics to grooming. The story spread like wildfire, with other newspapers picking it up and running with it. Matt Wiesler, now in his 50s, saw his name in the news too. He read what he'd always suspected. After he'd blown the whistle, a secret memo had gone round the BBC stating that he would not work for them again. It seemed that Wiesler had been scapegoated and punished for the forgeries. It was, he thought, like blaming a fountain pen for writing a nasty letter. A few weeks later, Wiesler got the call he had hoped for. There was going to be a full independent inquiry into the BBC's actions, and this time he was asked to give evidence. The inquiry was led by Lord Dyson, the former president of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, who took down every word and detail of Wiesler's testimony. Wiesler felt a huge sense of relief that the truth was finally being unraveled. Earl Spencer was also asked to testify and gave Lord Dyson the extensive notes he had made during his first meetings with Bashir. Finally, in May 2021, six months after the inquiry began, the damning Dyson report was published. In it, Lord Dyson assessed the actions of the BBC and Martin Bashir's myriad claims. He stated that while Diana had agreed to do the interview of her own free will, she had been manipulated unwittingly by Bashir. Dyson concluded that Bashir had fabricated the information in the bank statements. There was no evidence that Earl Spencer's former head of security, Alan Waller, had accepted money from News International or any royal-funded surveillance companies in exchange for information. And the same was true for Diana's private secretary and Prince Charles's private secretary. The bizarre allegations Bashir had told Earl Spencer about the royal family, including the facts about the nanny and William's spy watch, were entirely baseless too. Lord Dyson reported that Bashir had commissioned Matt Wiesler to make these false balance statements before his meeting with Earl Spencer in order to foster a trusting relationship and get access to Diana. He stated that he rejected significant parts of Mr. Bashir's account as incredible, unreliable, and in some cases, dishonest, and added that showing Earl Spencer forged bank statements had been devious. As for the actions of the BBC bosses, Dyson surmised that the BBC had covered up Bashir's wrongdoing without justification and that their actions fell short of the high standards of integrity and transparency which were its hallmark. Dyson also acknowledged that Matt Wiesler had paid a heavy price for his decision to speak out. The BBC had actively crushed his career, forcing him into financial straits. The BBC accepted Lord Dyson's findings, returned their BAFTA award, and apologized to Wiesler. They agreed to give him a healthy settlement in compensation. For Diana's sons, Princes William and Harry, the investigation had opened up old wounds. They both spoke out, stating that the actions of Martin Bashir and the BBC had worsened their parents' relationship and damaged their mother's mental health. 
When the report was published, it left Bashir's career in tatters. But before he could be fired from the BBC, he left voluntarily, citing ill health following a recent surgery and COVID. Bashir has since apologized to Diana's sons, William and Harry, and he maintains that he never wanted to harm Diana in any way and doesn't believe he did. He stated that everything he did in the interview was as she wanted and insisted that he and his family had loved her. As for Matt Wiesler, he eventually moved away from the TV industry and now co-owns a bicycle design company in Southwest England. But while he has moved on, he says he has never managed to shake his feelings of guilt. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on this story, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Dyson Report, the independent inquiry from 2021, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable, executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, and David McGuire, developed for podcast by Julian Boireau, written by Gabrielle Nash and Alice Homewood, produced by Alice Homewood, editorial support from Mike Jempson, mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Joe Richardson for Stable, and hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. Rodriguez.